feels a lot better to be getting the animals to have the nutrients they need the natural way rather than trying to put it into them later, uh, man-made. If it comes out of the soil and the plants got it the way they're meant to get it and then the animals get it from the plant, it's got to be a healthier way. The Biological Farming Roundtable podcast helps farmers explore innovative, low-input, regenerative and profitable farming systems. The Biological Farming Roundtable is sponsored by Nutrisoil, an award-winning biological liquid fertiliser made from a big worm farm. Nutrisoil's purpose is to empower farmers to produce life-enriching food. Today's conversation is with David and Ruth Reed from Perrybridge, Victoria, who, along with Ruth's sister, Jen, operate Woodcote Farms, an 823-hectare regenerative grazing property. Ruth and David are big picture thinkers and knowledge seekers. They value that through land management, they can make a difference to the health of our plants, animals, people and planet. Ruth and David are wisely strategic and have consciously designed their business to support nature because ultimately it makes them happier. It's also profitable and productive. They have a strong foundation and link with resource consulting services and also KLR marketing. Through the RCS Executive Link program, they are part of a board that's been meeting annually for 19 years. It has a purpose to ensure that each of its members are making the best decisions possible to maintain their visions and goals. Ruth and David use a computer program that helps them maintain a three-month feed wedge ahead of them. And because they have clear business visions and goals that keep them focused, they operate with less overwhelm. This is my conversation with the beautiful couple, David and Ruth Reed from Woodcote Farms. Hello, David and Ruth. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Nicole. Lovely to be here sharing our story. Good morning, Nicole. Hi, David. Yeah, absolutely. I've been watching um, the Twitter share that you've been doing and on Facebook and really boldly sharing all the new things that you're doing and regenerating your farm you've been doing it for a long time so I would love you guys to share the things that you're doing the successes that you're having and and the failures you might have had along the way so we can all learn so firstly let us hear about your um, properties at Woodcote is that how I say it yeah we've got three properties that we've managed between um, Stratty and Stratford and Bensdale and East Gippsland so total is about 180 at 23 hectares, did I say that? <laughs> 823 hectares. Um, originally, it used to be like 25 paddocks, um, the main block, and we divided them up, and so uh, we have about 140 paddocks, and they're six hectare paddocks. We were traditional breeders of sheep and cattle. Um, however, after doing a lot of training and and learning. And um, evolving, we now uh, trade all our animals and we utilise the animals to um, harvest our green growing plants. The other part of our team, so there's David and myself and my sister, Jen, uh, and she did a farm apprenticeship for Dad um, back in 1981 and we started on the farm in the early 90s. Yeah, so the three of you are managing the farm. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. So yeah. Jen's been here for a long time and stuff and um, her partner, Pete helps occasionally, but it's mostly Jen, David and myself. So David works full time and, and I'm sort of here and there. Yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm feeling a lot of feminine energy in this farm. Is that what's going on? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. So Jen's very good on um, the uh, ecology side. Uh, she also does all the buying of the cattle and stuff at the markets. Uh, she's a wool classer as well. She's very hands-on. She has all the fencing and, and all that sort of stuff as well. And I'm a very good gauge opener. I do a bit of the bookwork. <laughs> David does most of the bookwork. Uh, there's a skill in opening gates, Ruth, you know. <laughs> all right. So you, you, all three of you seem to have this noticeably clear direction in moving away from chemicals. You haven't really been using them for a long time on your property and farming more naturally. What started you in this direction? Was it Jen first um, or, you know, tell me how that all happened. I'd say it was probably uh, led a fair bit by Jen. She was more keen on, on being a more natural and utilising the local species, Indigenous species to the area, both with the tree planting and then with the grazing, wanting more of our own, the native grasses to grow. Um, we don't not use chemicals, but we're certainly down to very minimum. Um, and that probably started with Ruth and I after we were doing a bit of fair bit of spraying one year, and we just it was just affecting us. We were getting headaches within half an hour of, of spraying thistles or something. So it was then that we sort of realised rather than uh, continuing and putting extra extra protective clothing on, which just seemed to be defeating the purpose. If it's that bad that you have to cover yourself completely head to toe, maybe we shouldn't be using these things. Our sheep also got, we've got OJD in the sheep, Ovanyoni's disease, uh, and uh, and we ended up having a lot of um, metabolic issues and stuff with the cows and uh, things with the calves scouring and stuff as well. So we felt that there must be a better way that we weren't quite working with the with the environment and, um, and doing the best for our animals or for us. So... So we started looking at what else we could do, and there must be better ways to do these to farm than the um, than the chemical conventional agriculture. Yeah, and did that disease suppression um, start to happen as soon as you started reducing those chemicals and regenerating your land? Uh, it did with the, the metabolics in the cattle. Uh, we put magnesium and and calcium in on the soil, and the next year we just completely eliminated. All metabolic, so some of them are very quick like that. Um, but a lot of the time, it's it's a long process. But it feels a lot better to be getting the animals to have the nutrients they need the natural way, rather than trying to put it into them later, uh, man-made. If it comes out of the soil and the plants got it the way they're meant to get it, and then the animals get it from the plant, it's got to be a healthier way. Absolutely, it's just like us in our kitchen, isn't it? That's what we want to be doing: is eating eating nutritious food rather than me taking those tablets and animals and humans were, were very similar. Indeed. So I'm going to start with a few things that I've seen you do through photos on Twitter. Um, I've seen that you've set up your own liquid inject system. Can you tell us how you do that? Uh, that's a combination of many ideas. Um, we were lucky enough to come across a, a disseeder this year. Um, we had been playing with a we'll call it a prototype, we just built it out of whatever we had laying around just to see how well it worked and we we're very happy. So we bought a nine-metre machine this year and so we've been looking at field days and on social media as to how people do it and we were lucky enough to visit Ian and Diane Haggerty last year, uh, earlier this year, sorry. So we had a, 
had a look at their machines and, and had a great chat with them. It was fantastic. Um, so we've just put an old Nutrisol IBC on the front of our C-cart, got a fairly large 12-volt diaphragm pump, and then just did basic garden plumbing all the way down to the each boot. Um, and then we've got liquid furt tubes at the end, which are four mil by one and a half mil internal diameter. So that restricts the flow and and sets our rate to about 100 litres per hectare. So it was all, it's all a little bit of trial and error, a little bit of looking at what other people have done and just pumping water is fairly basic for farming. We're doing it all the time. So it just we just had to modify a few things. We've we had a bit of an issue with some blockages, so we now filter down to a, to 50 mesh when it goes into the container, and then we've got another 50 mesh filter before the pump, and that's eliminated all blockages, and we seems to be going really well. Where did you get all the resources from that? Um, that was interesting because we started building it two days after COVID lockdown, so we're a bit limited okay. as to what we could do. So most of the things were bought over the internet. So yeah, just um, basic airline hose, water hose, fittings. You know, you can get it from any hardware store or anyone that deals in pneumatics. So it was all fairly easy and reasonably priced. Yeah. Okay. I saw that you had some issues um, with sloshing around um, with the liquid inject. What was happening? It was sloshing out of the IBC. Yeah, yeah. Or? Every time you hit a bump. You could see the the water splashing. It was all right when it was full, but when it got down to half and quarter full, it was going all over the place. And and sometimes it would suck air. It was sloshing around that much. So we had seen in firefighting vehicles, which often drive around with water at less than full, um, they put drainage pipe, which is the slotted drainage pipe that you put in your garden. It's um, we bought fifty mil. And so we just bought a coil of that and you just throw it in in a chaotic manner so that it goes all over the place in the in the IBC and it just settles the water. There's, it fills, because it's got slots, it fills up inside itself and then it just takes all that movement out of it. Mm, how very simple. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And it worked instantly. It was fantastic. You've also set up, you're very handy, you've also set up your own um, extraction system. Can you tell us how you do that? Well, the initial one, we bought a GOT brewer through a company called ASAP in 2006 after we did the Elaine Ingham Soil Food Web course. So we've, set, we've got one of those, which is a basically a, a stainless steel extractor that blows air using a large aquaculture pump that blows air into the water in a 1,000-litre shuttle and then you've got the um, what we call a tea bag, which has about six to eight kilos of compost or vermicast. And that is put in the water, air blown through it, and it's just a really turbulent water system that takes all the organisms and everything that we need off the um, soil or the off the compost or the vermicast and then just puts it in the water and then we're able to use it as a spray. And, yeah, so we did copy that one and made a, a twin one so that we can run it off the same blower, but we also, with that one, it doesn't have the extraction dome of the GOT brewer. Um, so we just use a, a tea bag and just have an air pipe into that with the same little blower into that to try and get the um, to get the microorganisms off the compost. So 
we have made teas before in the past, but yeah, we um, the extracting is easier. Easier, yeah. So when you're putting that air pump onto the bag, is it directly on the bag, or is it just um, in the in the IBC or the or the? There's two parts to it. So if you imagine a, a tea that goes down to the floor of the of the IBC. And so you want the water right, the air blowing right down the bottom, so that you can stir up anything that tries to settle on the on the bottom. And then that, so that's bubbling all the way from the bottom of the tank up. And then in the top third is where the tea bag is, and it has its own little blower inside that to just try and disturb the compost or the vermicast, whichever you're using. Yeah, and so does it fall out of the bag? Is it does all of the vermicast and compost come out and go in suspension? Probably 75% of it comes out in suspension. Some of it settles to the bottom. Um, the, the compost and, and vermicast are completely different. The compost, a lot of it stays inside the tea bag because uh, it's often coarser, um, but the vermicast almost goes totally in suspension. Yeah. It's a real fine product. It comes out really nice. And what about when it falls to the bottom? Like some would fall to the bottom of the vat. What do you do? Do you have to clean it out? Do you have a like a, a plug at the bottom or do you have to manually get in and shovel it out? Yeah, once again, we're just using recycled IBC. So it's got the tap at the bottom. So when we've stopped brewing, we'll just let it settle for 15 minutes or so. And then because we don't want the bigger particles in our tank. And then we just lift it with a forklift and open the tap and transfer it into our tank that we going to the other farm or straight into the, the cedar. Um, so we don't get the bigger particles out. And we can probably do three or four brews before we decide that we need to clean out the bottom. And it's just a matter of getting a hose in there and just flushing it out. So it takes five minutes to clean it out. Right. Okay. And you've got two going at the same time. Yeah, that's so that we've got the 2,000 litres. So that's what um, we will hold a 1,000 litre in the IBC when we're doing the liquid inject. But if we're doing a spray cart of, um, of putting the extract out and some other nutrients, then we've got a 2,200 um, litre spray cart. So we find that that's easy enough to do that. But as well, um, when David's going with the liquid inject and in the paddocks, the 100 litres a hectare is what he's usually putting out in the ground. You know, it takes about an hour or so and then it just loads up again. So we just got it in our other cart if we're on a different block or something and it's um, all easy enough to pump from one to the other. Do you have to use it immediately? Um, there's varying questions and, um, and resources and that. Lots of people store it for a long time. We find that um, we have, because we're not making a whole lot and we're not using heaps, like we're not croppers as such, um, we're just adding and biology and um, and some extra species to our paddocks. So we only we generally use ours within um, a few hours to a few days. So we're not um, storing it for a long time, whereas other people have. So because we don't add any um, ingredients to the extract, it shouldn't really be uh, making any of the spores in the compost or vermicast or anything grow. So it's probably not that important to try and keep it aerobic. Um, but just going back to our uh, education from Elaine and our readings from that, like she was all about making sure things are aerobic. 
and we made a lot of teas along the way. We made lots of markups during those as well. But we had made some excellent teas as well. But teas are only as ever as good as the compost or vermicast that you use to begin with. So diversity is everything and you can only make as good a tea as the initial product that you're using and you can add the different foods and stuff. And at times we had lovely lots of foam and and um, messes happening when you add too much food for what's in your compost and that sort of thing. So, And as part of our course with Elaine, we um, bought a microscope as well. So we do test what and have a look what's in the extracts and so we don't see as much growing as what we did in the teas and stuff and we probably don't do that as often as we did with the teas like we did that every every time so but the teas are just much more fiddly we're just really wanting diversity and to add extra uh biology to our soils and stuff to hopefully if it's the right conditions and what we put in there they'll do a good job for us and if they're not then they'll sit there until it's the conditions are right yeah, we, we can't we can't see a point in we want to put the um, Nutrisoil out with the seed and we can't see a point of just adding water to the Nutrisoil. Why can't we add something that's going to be a benefit? Yeah, yeah so essentially you're using this as your water base. This is our water. Absolutely. Yep, yep. Yep. There's no point just using plain water yeah, when we can add benefit to it. Just on the water, we do try and use rainwater if we can, but otherwise we have got pretty good bore water. So um, so if that's what we've got to use, but if we've got enough rainwater, we'll prefer to use that to make our extract. So, yeah, so we just needed a carrier, so we may as well just add some extra things, that, that, which isn't, doesn't take too much effort. Yeah. And how long, like how do you know when that extract is ready? How long does it actually need to be aerated for? Well, there's probably a couple of clues. Um, the colour of the water, it goes to a nice chocolate brown. That's probably a, a good indication. Um, but then the, the amount of contents of, of the tea bag, if it's vermicast, it's almost empty. But it, it's just a case of, you know, you just have a look, do different times. We've, we've worked out that about two hours is sort of where you need to be. You could get it okay after an hour, but you probably, that second hour, you just you do get that little bit more. You're probably getting 75% of it out in an hour, but you're getting a really good extract in two, two to three. So, And it doesn't matter if we often set it up in the morning, go out and do our, our day and then come back and it's ready that evening. So it does, you can't go too long, I don't think. We don't think so. We don't think so, but, yeah. So it, it's about the two to three hours is, is where we mm. try and be. Yeah, that's what um that's what the GOT bureau instructions had said as well to do about two hours. And as well, if you wanted more concentrated, then you could refill the tea bag and do some more extracting in that same one. So yeah, we're only using about six to eight kilos. We don't extract again and again, whereas you could make it a stronger. And I have seen somewhere that it's a lot darker in colour than what we put out. Yeah. So and you think that they've put a fresh bag in and they've brewed it again. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Or yeah. Ex- extracted. We can't say brewed because oh, we, we haven't added the extra yeah. food. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, where do you buy the bags from? Do you have to use a fresh bag each time? No, no. We just um, rinse those out. They actually come up really well. So the GOT brewer came with its own. Um, it's a quite a fine mesh. And the other one we have bought, uh, yeah. the other it, tea bag. It looks a bit similar to a lightweight shade cloth. Yeah. I'm thinking yeah. like a washing bag, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. A yeah. heavier version, heavier version of a washing bag. Yeah. 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 Yep. 
Yeah, but there's quite a few um, places that sell sell the, um, the the bags and stuff. If you look at some brewing sites, there's several other ones. But uh, we haven't had um, actually. Jen made the bag for our second brewer and stuff, so it just had Velcro across the top and stuff, and yeah, just to try and seal it up. Yeah, so you can make your own bags as well if you've got the right starting material. Sort of like nylony, um, a nylony type plastic. Laundry yeah. bag. Yeah. Could you use just a Hessian bag and tie it up? It might be too too broad. The size of the mesh is reasonably important. So it may work. I don't know. Yeah. I have seen other people use Hessian bags and stuff. So I guess so long as not too many fibres come out of the bag as well. So maybe the Hessian might break down quicker. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. And where do you get your compost and your vermicast from? Everywhere. Yeah. Um, the, the key to what we're finding with regenerative agriculture is diversity. So we're using three products at the moment. We're getting some vermicast from Nutrisol. We've got some compost from YLAD at Young. And we've got some vermicast from Davo's Worm Farm over at Ballarat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we're hoping to add a, a Johnson Sioux from us into the ingredient so we're, we're just still in the development stage of that we have made our own compost but we're a bit lazy and it's not our um which is why we'll probably just do a johnson sue and leave it in waste so it's it's not um we on our journey of visiting lots of people and stuff if you don't do things right then you lose or or you start another enterprise then often you lose focus of where you're really meant to be going so we don't want to be at this stage um, compost makers although I have been watching lots of videos and um, zooming about learning about making compost but yeah it's about having a diversity of ingredients as well I think so and whether we're committed to having a variety of foods in there is what it goes back with Elaine saying if compost is only as good as the as the diversity that you collect it from to start off with. Were you able to get on the webinar, the Vic No-Till webinar with David Hardwick last week? Yes, yeah, and he's doing another one, I think, this this next week. So, yeah, very, um, very good. He's so easy to um, to listen to as well. And we went, um, Jen went to a Bugs and Brews day with him locally as well before COVID started. So, um, yeah, so we've got some good tips from him as well. Yeah, that's probably about the only bonus that we've had with COVID is that we've had access to more speakers and more um, knowledge than we would have in a in the normal world because we wouldn't have been able to go to every field day. But when it's all on Zoom, you can just you can continue working and listening and and do all the days. So a, a half day field day, which may take two days out of your out of your work schedule if you've got to travel somewhere, it's just been fantastic. You just log in and listen and. And away you go. So there's absolutely. been some positives out of COVID. Oh, I absolutely agree. I'm with you. I'm, I'm learning along with you, David, with all of these amazing speakers that are giving up their time on Zoom. So when you um, have extracted and you've put it into your tank, what do you add with it when you're sowing? Is it the same every time or do you change it according to what you're sowing? Uh, for sowing... At the moment, we, we won't say we change every time, but we won't say we're going to stick to what we do because we, you know, we're always learning and there's something developed. But at the moment, we put a coating on the seed, um, which is 
minerals, microbes and carbon that we learnt from Joel Williams at the Vic No-Till conference last year in Shepparton. So we put those three products on and then we inject with five litres of Nutrisoil and the extract. So you do the inoculation first. How we do, do the inoculation. Yep. Yeah, how do you inoculate your seed? On the seed cart, there's the filling auger. So we hold, we as it fills, uh, I'm operating the auger and Ruth's got a watering can with the ingredients and she just pours it in and by the time it's in the seed drill, it's mixed and ready to go. And what type of amount when you're inoculating, like litreage per tonne? Five litres of Nutrisoil. Of tonne. Per, per tonne. tonne. Yeah. Five litres of uh, seed enhancer, which is the minerals, and a scoop full of fulvic acid, which is about a kilo. So mix all that up and then put it on at 10 litres per tonne-ish. When we're using a watering can, it's only ish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that's fine. And where did you get the mineral mix from? That's a, a Ferdy Tech product. Yep. And why do you add the fulvic acid at, at um, sowing? That's the carbon component of the recipe from Joel. Yeah. So minerals, microbes and carbon. Yep. We just put a bit of fulvic acid in. Yep. So the Ferdy Tech product as well, it does suggest that you use the fulvic acid as well as a buffer and to do the carbon as well. You could just use water, but we um, but we do like the fulvic acid powder as well. So And we've used Nutritech ones and Omnia and Ferdy Tech's fulvic acid powders. So. Yeah, we did also in our um, uh, the liquid extract uh, one, we did try popping in some fish hydrolysate as well after listening to Nicole Masters, one of the Zoom calls with Nicole. So we tried putting that down the tube as well, but we had too many blockages with that. So then we'd go out and we'd be like, oh, we haven't been putting any down the tube for the last however many runs because we didn't realise it was blocked and stuff. I'd just be going past and going, oh, it doesn't look like that tank full of liquid extracts going down much. Maybe I had a look to see, you know, how the filters are. So, um, yeah, so we just have to try and spray the fish hydrolysate on um, as a foliar later. Yeah. I did want to go back again. You said you were researching the Johnson Sioux. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so the Johnson City has got some great videos, um, Dr David Johnson and his partner, um, Dr. Uh, he's not a doctor, I think it's just his wife, um, and uh, he started doing, he was wondering what he was going to do uh, after he turned 50, so he didn't become a, um, a microbiologist and go to university until he was 51. That's wow. a story to start off with. You can yeah. always keep learning. Um, so he was playing a lot with compost and stuff as I think as part of one of his research projects and stuff. And his, his wife said there must be an easier way. You're coming in all dirty and covered and stuff, having to churn the compost all the time and stuff. So so the Johnson Sioux um, is basically a, a taller version of having it in a uh, IBC tote and stuff, that sort of size but a bit taller in it. And initially... You have to have at least um, five or six tubes which are perforated, like um, PVC tubes, that you mount in the in a circular fashion and it has um, the wire and um, things around. So it, the, it needs to be aerated and breathing and stuff, which is so you stack those in and then you have to add your ingredients into the um, into the tote. Or the um, or the wire cage that has uh, got the hessian around it, and so it becomes a bioreactor by adding the well. 
um, Dr. Johnson, he only had leaves that he used in um, in his, and so he watered the leaves in and stuff, and they were uh, munched up leaves and stuff. But you can use um, other people. I've joined the, the Facebook group, and there were some fantastic people doing um, some really good stuff who are sharing their knowledge of that. But uh, the white wood chips, and you can use some manures and greens and whatever and stuff, but make more woody materials and greens is what they are using. And you just layer it on, layer it on, layer it on. And then you have to water it every day for just a minute uh, every day and uh, wait for 12 months. And then it sort of comes out like a clayey type material and stuff. But it's got some really good um, YouTubes on it and stuff. And so we just haven't done it yet because I haven't set up to, um, I couldn't trust myself to water it every day for a minute. So we'll have to set up a timer and stuff. So we'll, um, but we end, uh, and now it's winter, the uh, the leaves have all started to fall. So I have started to collect some leaves and, and we've got some wood chips. Why the white wood chips? Does it have to be white wood chips? Um, it does have to be, but the eucalyptus wood and the natives have too much oils and, and stuff in them. So apparently the white woods are better, according to Nicole. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it creates more of a fungal type of product when you're using the white wood chips. I know in, in the Nutrisol worm farms, it's white wood chips that we use. Yeah. Right, as well. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, it is, it's, it's, we need, um, we can make bacterial um, materials, but we've got enough bacterial foods in our paddock. So we're after the fungal compost so that to add that variety to our pastures and stuff. So we're just wanting to add more diversity to the soils. So if we can make it fungal and then get that spread out and the liquid is the extract is the easiest way to go to get that over a bigger area and uh, rather than spread just compost, which would be awesome, but we don't going to have that much. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you add worms as well in Johnson Sioux, don't you? Uh, you can. Not everybody does, but I believe yeah, after a few weeks you, you can add the worms and stuff after it's done its heating phase and stuff. And those pipes only stay in, the PVC pipes, slotted pipes, only stay in for the first two days, I think, just to allow air holes for breathing and stuff and the other ones through. So it's pretty groovy that you don't have to turn it all the time. And he, um, Dr Johnson did Elaine Ingham's Soil Food Web course as well, so it, it is all combined in that and she does refer to him to, in some of her, um, her talks and stuff these days as well. So yeah. we're all learning. Absolutely. So if you want to learn about the Johnson Sioux, you just have to Google him, I think, and it comes up pretty easily. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about your pasture cropping. You've been sowing directly into pastures without herbicide, is that right? Uh, some of the paddocks we have, uh, we try to. Uh, that, that's our aim. Sometimes we've got too much competition or we need to replace this. We've got some fairly aggressive weeds on one of the farms. So we set it back a little bit this year. It's the first time we've, we've probably sprayed anything in three or four years. Um, but we've used a really reduced rate. We're using about a quarter to a third of the recommended rate by putting out um, some citric acid with the tank load and also a, um, a spray buffering recipe. Which is both mostly fulvic acid based, really. So yeah. that it does have a few other things in it as well. But. Yeah, okay. So that, so that, that's, that's worked well. It has been effective. That's what I wanted to know. So you're using, did you say a third less? We, uh, we've 
done two paddocks this year. We used 250 mils of Roundup in, per hectare in one paddock and 500 mils in another. And the label's saying one and a half to two litres. Yeah, and you got a knockdown with the 250 mils? We did. Yeah, it was slow and probably didn't do a total knockdown, but it is. it has set back everything in the paddock enough that we're able to get a strike. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me about how you use the citric acid. Do you add it and then do a pH test and how low do you get that pH using the citric acid? Um, our pH meter arrived after the first load, but we usually try to get it around that um, pH of three and a half, three to three and a half. So it's quite acidic. Uh, it doesn't take much with the citric acid to get that. There's about, I think it's about a kilo or a kilo and a half per thousand litres. So it's not a lot. But yeah, you've got to get that in, that in suspension first before you add anything else. Yeah. So firstly, use your citric acid to reduce your pH. Then add your glyphosate or the fulvic acid. What's your order? Does it matter? I don't think it matters, but we would add the the fulvic acid next. Yeah. Get that out, and then the Roundup last. How much fulvic acid? Um, we use a kilo per thousand liters. Um, I think Graham Sane has a, a magic number around three point six pH. I think is okay. what. He, yeah, 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 I think I read. I listened to him on one of his podcasts say that. So yeah. yeah. I yeah. did remember writing that down somewhere and going, oh, need to remember that number. So, but yes, we did buy one of the um, the groovy pH meters, but we did get that after um, yes. <laughs> after we'd uh, we'd done that. So before that, we just done the recipes that was suggested. Yeah, but it certainly makes a difference that you don't have to use near as much chemical and stuff. And um, and after listening to more things on from Zach Bush um, and Graham Sage, uh, we really don't want to use glass sage again. So, oh yeah. Um, nasty. Yeah, absolutely. It's um I mean we do we know that biologically healthy soils can biodegrade it. We know we can use less by using these tools of your citric acid and your fulvic acid. So like you say, we don't have to use none, but we can use less if we concentrate on managing it correctly. When you go to a paddock and decide whether you're going to use a knockdown or whether you're going to sow directly in. Tell me what you look at. What what would make you feel comfortable that you could sow in directly and get a good germination? Most of the time that we can comfortably go in with no, no herbicide is when we're putting the plantings in in late spring, early summer. So when we put what we call our summer mix in, um, when when the season's ending for the plants that are growing, when they start to slow down or shut down, or whether it's weather. Um, so the soil starts to dry out, we can safely put that in because then when we get rain, everything starts from zero. So what wants to grow will manage to grow. We're not trying to force anything to grow, and that's why we're using so many species, 15, 16 species in the seed mix, so that nature can work out what's ready to grow, what will grow now, what will wait and grow later. Um, but in uh, when we're putting our winter mix in, you know, what's there and, and what is going to grow? What's the competition? How much is there? There's, so there's many factors. We, we try and graze out the paddock first and then come directly in with the cedar so that they're all we're, we're down to a low base. The cedar doesn't damage the existing plants. That's why we've gone for a dish cedar. We don't want to, we want to increase diversity. We don't want to reduce what's there in some cases. 
Um, but in, in other cases, if we're getting a dominant weed like African lovegrass, well, we're going to try and set it back a bit because it, it can dominate. So on a property on the block we call Woodcote, which is a home one, um, we're mostly a perennial base of Coxfoot and we have got other parts as well. The Coxfoot's still here because it was the least desirable and that was the one that survived after all the droughts and we ate it all the, everything out to look like dust bowls. Um, but it's still here from when up from when Dad planted it back in the 50s, 60s and 70s, and as well as some loosened bits and you know other plants as well. So the disc seed is great because it just cuts through it, but we're not actually ripping out any plants, so which we were when we were using a boot um, feeder before. Uh, mm-hmm. At one of the newer blocks that we bought in 2006, there's a lot of African love grass on there. So we've tried all sorts of different things to try and combat the love grass. We, we have tried killing it with um, with herbicide, with task force, which is a fluoropropionate one, I think, and that did kill it for a couple of years as well as everything else. Uh, but it does reappear again. So we're starting at a light, lighter base at that uh, other block that we call Polonia. So we probably have tended to use more um, herbicide there to try and knock back the um, the African lovegrass as well. But we know it will return because it's such a, it's such a prolific cedar, and uh, it, you know it's doing its job that nature's popped it there and we just need to try and get some other species in there as well to build up our soil and to try and make it so it's not just the dominant species that we can get some other more desirable perennials that the cattle and like to eat and can uh, do a job for us rather than it becoming so uh, moribund. It's good when it's it's low and stuff and it is green and growing and, and low base and we can get some really good growth off it with the animals, but it just becomes so dominant. Uh, and just it doesn't allow too many other things in. But it, I'm sure it's trying to tell us a story. Uh, we just need, so we're just trying to add to the story and add more diversity in there to try and keep get our soil better so that we can get other plants to come back and more natives to return. We've mown some love grass, so we've got some mulch down on the ground and it's growing quite well. But the kangaroos have got great access to that, so they're enjoying that crop. But where the um, love grass is, Stand is still erect and it's about two, uh, about 600 mil high. The peas that we've planted in the mix are actually using it as a trellis and are climbing up the lovegrass stalks. So, yeah. yeah, you can work in amongst it. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to, we'll have to get a photo of that when then we can. Yeah. So it sounds like it's it's a very much a holistic way of dealing with this African lovegrass. And you've also got an understanding that it is always going to be there at some level. You're just trying to reduce it sort of um, taking over. Exactly. I think it's such a prolific cedar and stuff and that we you know you transport it so easily with the with vehicles and stuff as it, as it on tracks and stuff. So even if we go from one block to the other, like we've brought it back here on our home place, and but it's usually on the tracks and stuff. So we try and we try and chip it out when it comes here um, to uh, try and eliminate its seeding here and stuff. But it is um, it, it is just trying to hold the sand together and we're pretty much, we're not far from the beach. Um, as the crow flies, we're only about uh, 30Ks. So it is sandy. We would have been a sand dune at some point. So we are just on very much grey sand uh, and there isn't, you know, we, it's hard to hold the nutrients in and it's hard to to um to get a good soil structure and uh, and aggregates. So 
So, you know, we're, we're starting from a, a low base. So I, it, it's doing a job, but it's not necessarily the one that we'd love to have there. But it, it does do a job that we're, we're just trying to see if we can add some other things into it. And by growing other plants and using the power of photosynthesis to, to create the carbon in the soil and the humus and, and the, the, uh, that grows some green matter. And then we use our livestock to eat that for us. And that's what we can uh, use to make our way in this agricultural world. Mm, yeah. Yeah. The, all of the mixes that you do, do you get your cover crop seeds from one place? Uh, in the last two years, we have. We were lucky enough to, to by accident, uh, met up with Grant Sims, who's now set up the company down under covers. Um, he had a he had an ad for some cereal rye, and we rang him, and we were after some, and and we had a good chat, and then he said he was at that time he was president of Vic No Till, so we joined Vic No Till and went to the conference, and and had a really good really good learning for those couple of days, and since then Grant set up his own business selling seed, and so we it's just so much easier to get it, and it's really good value. So we buy his pre-mixed seeds. Um, we'll have a bit of a discussion before the season as to what we think will work here and what he thinks will be a benefit. And, yeah, it's just been fantastic. So we get all of our seed direct from them. It is tricky to sometimes buy bare seed as well. So we want it bare so that we can put our own um, own biology on by using, like, the Nutrisoil or, you know, we, you could put compost on as well. Um, so we don't want any fungicides and pesticides already on the seeds and stuff. We do inoculate a bit as well in terms of the bacteria and stuff that go with the um, with the clovers and lucerne and stuff. So, but we just find it hard at times to buy the bare seed. Um, apparently, if you ask the companies, they we you can sometimes get bare seed. So initially, in our first couple of seasons of doing this, we uh, we did just buy bird mix, like the parrot mix, finch. Wild bird, canary. canary. We, we we bought a bag of each and threw them in for the <laughs> summer, and um and that's where we did grant cereal rye as well, um and some loosen as well, and it went really well. Like you know, we hardly had any rain, and uh, we were really surprised. And we didn't put any fertilizer or anything out with it, so we we're really surprised with what came up. So so that's why we decided to get into it more and um you know take advantage of any summer rains that we get. So which which we do. So we're uh, our area. We don't have a dominant growing season as such. We get about forty. We we should get around forty mils a month of rain, and then any particular month in the year we can get an extra hundred mil dump. So um, and which often will happen across those summer months and stuff. So this last year we were very fortunate to get a hundred mil in Jan. So. Um, so we did that uh, as soon as it rained. We hopped in and we um, and started planting. Yeah, so it's been good. Hmm. I think we we put the cattle in our last the last paddock just recently. Hmm. So it's it's grown and held on, and we're still eating. Which was which was our weakest. April was always our weakest time for for having any grass left over. So planting these summer mixes is just fantastic. That just brought. A, a huge amount of feed into our March, April. So that's made a, a, a big difference with being able to carry more stock over summer and then having more cows <laughs> on and not having to stress. And 
if we can sell when we want to sell animals, not be forced into selling animals, much better for, for us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that takes us into grazing management. Um, you guys have been very involved with RCS, Resource Consulting Services. Can you tell us about who they are, what they do, and how you, you're connected with them? Sure. Uh, we, we met up with RCS, I think it was 2001. Uh, we did an introductory great one-day grazing for profit introduction locally, and then we thought this this looks like a really good thing to do. So I went away and did the, the seven-day course in 2001, I think it was, and then Jen did hers in 2002. So they're a they're a training company that provides holistic management training based on the Alan Savory and Stan Parsons teachings. They cover not just grazing, they're covering the whole of agriculture. They're covering you know, money management, people management, animal management, grass management, everything you need to, to be a successful business. Um, and from there, we ended up um, going through and doing the, um, after you do the grazing for profits, they have a graduate link program and then the executive link. So the executive where you would go into boards and uh, and they put you in with another um, five farming groups or families and stuff and you create a board. So that usually goes for three years and you do three meetings a year and stuff. So we um, so we joined that um, and we enjoyed it so much that we did another three-year tenure and stuff. And at that point we changed from RCS to principal focus. It was just a change in who was management at the top. But anyway, we continued to meet with our board that we were set up with, with a couple of little changes in there from the beginnings with that. So we meet them with just them uh, annually each year and we go on farms somewhere. Um, we've all done our own farms a couple of times, but we've also been to other people's farms and businesses as well, as well as having a holiday and having some sort of adventure together as well. So this in um, February this year is when we decided that we'd like to go to Western Australia and we visited, got the privilege of going to see Ian and Diane Haggerty as well. So, so we had a great afternoon with them and uh, and learned a lot. And our group consists mainly of, um, of people from South Australia, croppers and livestock with sheep and cattle. So... Yeah, it's um, it's a really good diverse mix. They uh, they make you accountable for what you do, um, ask good questions, great support. You know, we share all our financials and have watched all our kids grow up and uh, kitchens built, tractors bought, businesses uh, divided up, and then you know then family members coming in with succession and and stuff like that. So it's um we've been together for 19 years now so they're a great support network for us and we don't all do the same thing in terms of which road we go down but we're all very much um along the looking after the the people um is is so important as well as the agriculture and and making it a living from it yeah that just sounds beautiful 19 years you've been sharing your lives together yeah, it's been amazing. So so many kids born and the schooling and, and for the guys in South Australia, they all had to send theirs to boarding school and stuff like that. So it's such quite a big challenge and, and um, yeah, and just watching businesses grow and the changing of seasons and we've seen goats and pigs and 
olives and um, yeah, all sorts of different uh, enterprises and and uh, crops grown and yeah, it's been a, it's been great. You must have so much trust built in a group like that to be able to share your financials so that people can keep you accountable and question what you do and you can learn from them. Like it's um it's very special, isn't it? And that, that's part of the RCS component is that developing trust. Um, it's quite a clear path that that they set you on, and that is so that you can develop that trust. And it's probably not until year two or three that you really start to to get that security and that trust. And then by the time you're at year nineteen, you know a lot of manners go out the door when they're saying, you know, when you bring something up and they just say, "Don't be stupid." You know, it's, it's just a, and the 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 way we can just not see each other for twelve months. We usually meet for a day so that we can just get together and catch up, and then day two we just jump straight into meeting mode, and that'll be, you know, nine a.m. till five p.m. We just go into board meetings and spend the whole day doing that, and then it's often an activity or a, a further education on the on the third or fourth day, and it's just just magnificent. So we've covered almost all of the country. I think we, we're looking at Canberra this year and we're hoping to celebrate our 30th meeting in maybe New Zealand or Fiji or somewhere. Wow. So do you have a, an RCS facilitator at those board meetings or they teach you how to structure your your time together? Uh, they We had facilitators for the first six years, um, but we would often facilitate ourselves occasionally in that structure. Um, I did a little bit of facilitation training in the late 2000s and then a couple of others have done some. But we, we know each other so well that we we self-facilitate and we have no issues. We, you know, people know when to, when to ask the right question or um, we've all done a little bit of um, work with Alan Parker and body language and, and so you can see when someone's holding on to something or not wanting to say something you just you'll be able to ask a question or poke them and saying you know what's your opinion or you know what do you think on that and then yeah you can get the discussion rolling so they're, they're very interesting meetings they no one holds back and then as soon as we close for the day it's just we're back into we'll have a a glass of red and we'll debrief and occasionally little groups will, will, you know, someone will say, oh, you need to talk to, you know, you need further information on this. So they'll go and get together and do a bit of homework or, or have a debrief based on what they were saying so that you can get more information than in the meeting. And and it's a, it's a great time. We look forward to it each year. Yeah, they're, it's a great group and, the, you know, the, the knowledge and the sharing uh, they're, you know, some pretty switched-on people that we're with, and uh, and it's just an enormous asset to our business and our personal lives as well to have them as friends. I just think that it's really important to develop those relationships. Um, there's something very special about people who I see go through this RCS program or in Executive Link. Um, you can just you can just see the, the wholeness of, of their farm and of them as a person as well. And the conversations can become much more meaningful. You're not just talking about the weather. You're in this space where people trust each other and farming is your whole life. 
and you can talk about all sorts of things. And mm, no, I, I highly recommend RCS to anyone who calls in when I talk to people on the phone here at Nutrisoil. So if they wanted to get involved in Executive Link, it would be recommend to do the seven-day course first. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And um, and there's, there's so many uh, that we've done. We we love learning and stuff, and you can you never can you should never stop learning. So uh, so we get a bit addicted to learning. So that that was sort of probably one of the started um, on our holistic journey. So since then, we've had many mentors and uh, educators who have assisted us on that journey. The main ones being Graham Hand, who's done holistic management, and uh, and so he really took us to a different level in terms of our grazing and um, and where we went from there. And then we've had Dick Richardson, who fine tuned us a little bit with his um, grazing naturally systems and stuff. We've had the likes of. Um, Dr. Christine Jones, who we followed for a long time with the amazing carbon and things. So we've um, enjoyed her her knowledge and, and sharing. And in terms of the whole quorum sensing and signalling that goes with those with the plants, which is where I guess we've gone on to the multi-species cropping as well and how important that is and just to get try and get our soil health better to, um, to increase our livestock underground to, to help our livestock above the ground and stuff. So she's been great with that. And probably our biggest um, ones in terms of our profitable business is... Well, the, the above ground business. The above, yeah, is, um, is that our, the KLR marketing guys of Rod Knight, Jim Lindsay and Graham Rees. So we actually met Graham at an executive link um, meeting um, and he was, we were, Jen and I and David were sitting in a spa with Graham and he was teaching low-stress stock handling at that point as well as being a, um, a facilitator at one of the executive link meetings. So that's how we met Graham. So we did the low-stress stock handling school and their connection with Bud Williams in doing that is how they set up this KLR marketing exercise. And it was during the uh, mid-2000s and stuff when we were going through um, dry times again we prefer not to call them droughts um, and uh, we were struggling with our business in terms of what we're doing with our breeding um, enterprises and stuff and we you know we'd heard enough about the KLR things to think you know what are we going to do we're, we're hurting we're um, we were in a leaky boat what what are we going to do we don't want our boat to sink we need to ha- make some changes so we looked to see when the next KLR course was on and it was in um, a 10 days' time in Emerald in Queensland. So Jen and I booked the tickets and we hopped on an aeroplane or two aeroplanes. We actually missed the booking uh, the bags in, so that was a different story, but we <laughs> our bags did eventually return up at Emerald. Um, but we, So we flew all the way to Emerald uh, to do the KLR course and, um, and it's been life-changing and business changing in the way we've operated our business so that we're still a profitable business and still in agriculture. Yeah, so now we just balance our inventories of grass, money and livestock. That's how we got out of our breeding, which was really just an emotional tie because um, we felt that we loved them all so much and they were so good that we couldn't part with them if they were pregnant or just had a calf or a lamb or anything. But we, So we severed that tie and just decided to trade animals so that we could try and just remove the emotional ties with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in doing so in trading animals, we've discovered there's some fantastic genetics that other people also 
have some beautiful animals um, and we enjoy owning them for a short amount of time. And so we just try and take animals up a grade from, um, you know, that might be a from a 200 kilo to a 350 kilo or a 400 to a 550 or a, um, whether they be heifers or steers or a skinny cow to a fat cow or a, a pregnant heifer to a calved, you know, first calf heifer or whatever that, wherever we can see there's a margin between something that's overpriced in the market and underpriced in the market and we can make some money on that using the grass that we have available because grass is king. If we don't have the grass, which is where it gets back to our grass management, then we can't do a trade and take the cattle forward. Then um, then that's what where it's a matter of balancing your inventories of grass money and livestock. Yeah. And what tools does the KLR course give you to um, manage your feed wedge and know when to buy and when to sell? Is it a computer package or like how, how do you make these decisions? Uh, they don't teach you so much about grass management. The, the only the, What they do say is you've got to have grass for the entire length of that trade. So if you if you wanted to keep an animal for three months, you should have three months worth of grass before you buy that animal to make sure that you can. It's to prevent any forced selling of animals. You want to be in charge of the sale. So you don't want to have to sell an animal because you've run out of grass. That puts you really at the mercy of the market. You don't get any control out of it. So they give you access to computer software. Uh, it's not so, so much software. They're, they're Excel spreadsheets that are calculators designed to work out whether the animal that you're thinking of selling is overpriced and the animal that you're thinking of buying is underpriced by on today's market. So it's not buy an animal and sell an animal. It's sell an animal, buy a replacement, and then you profit then. When you sell an animal, you only cash flow. You don't profit until you replace it and buy another animal. So yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's simple, but it's not that simple that you can explain it in five minutes. But it's, it's all about knowing, well, we know that to take animal A to animal B takes three months or six months. How much does that animal need to earn to pay all the bills for those three months? Yeah. And we know that. So as long as you get that bit, that component paid for when you sell and then buy, whatever above that is your profit. Yeah. So the, the calculators and the spreadsheets have been powerful and that it just becomes, rather than the emotional tie, they're just figures. So you go into the market, Jen goes with a buy sheet of knowing how much she can pay for a 300-kilo heifer, a 300-kilo steer, um, you know, or and what, and she knows what we're taking it to, whether it's a 450 kilo. And so we've already done the spreadsheets to know when you what price you can pay up to and how long we're going to hold them for. And it doesn't matter if you change your plan along the way after you've bought them, whether there's a change in conditions in the market or you're, you need the cash flow, so you need to um, actually sell them for your cash flow, or your grass conditions change as well. So, and you've got to match the stock that you buy to what feed you've got on the ground as well. So if you've just got all dry old feed and putting young animals on that might not do them justice. Whereas if you've got younger feed, you know, uh, you, what's the better sell of your grass too? So yeah, it's been a big part of our business in the, the last 15 years really for um, and made a big difference and, and changed our whole way of management and stuff like uh, so we do still have breeders, but, you know, they're usually somebody else's breeders that we're 
we're calving down or whatever. And we only have cattle at the moment, but we have had sheep along the journey as well. So that depends on what we can see that we can make a profit on so that we can take our business and, and be able to farm into the future, which is what we're aiming to do to make it um, profitable yet fun um, and enjoyable um, to be able to give back more than we've taken and farmed to the future. And we've got kids that are, are looking at coming onto the farm as well, so whether we can help get our business to a place that we can bring them on and be able to hand that on so that they can enjoy the lifestyle that we've had the privilege of enjoying. Yeah. How do you measure that this is working for you? Um, how do you do? You use soil tests? Is it your profit? Is it your happiness? What What is it that makes this a successful business for you? Probably happiness is the highest measure. We haven't been doing as many soil tests as we probably should, um, but we have been doing some of late with the multi-species plantings, we've been doing a few more soil tests. They've sort of confirmed what we knew, that we've got a base that's okay, but we've got a lot of trace minerals that are low. Um, so we'll have a little plan to put them, some of them on, but we're, we're expecting that the biology, once we can stimulate it and turn the biology on, that those sort of minerals may... Um, Although the soil will still be depleted in the top that we test, we find that there is some minerals that are showing up in the plants that the soil tests are saying we don't have enough of. Where's it coming from? Exactly, yes. <laughs> yes. So we're still, and we're still a long way from, from turning on the biology, I think, but we're getting closer. Yeah. Yeah. And we're learning more about it, and so so is the world. The, even the, the soil experts still probably only know single-digit percentages of what there is to know about soil. So it's going to be a pretty steep learning curve in the next 10 to 20 years, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of the, the land, we know that, um, so, you know, with our visions and goals, we had a nice meeting the other day about um, where to from here and setting our next goals and stuff. So we could um, we could purchase more land. We, like we're fairly... We, got good equity and stuff like that but we feel that we've got so much further that we could go with the with the property we already have yeah. so um so we need to improve what we've got and you know and then maybe it's the kids turn to to um to go further afield and and get bigger if they want to or or lease or adjust somewhere else or something so yeah we're we're fortunate in um and and very grateful for the base that we've had in in our upbringing having dad you know be in the farming business and, and have the land for us to be able to utilize but it's more about um getting it back to nature farming with nature and and uh and so our success i guess is is watching that we can grow the grass and have feed when when it's dry times and having the resilience in the in the um soil and our our grasses and landscapes to be able to run you know more animals or at times um, to be able to make money to make our lifestyle better but you know we, we're not going to going on elaborate holidays here there and everywhere but now that the kids have gone through school and uni then maybe a couple more overseas holidays might be nice when we're allowed um, yeah. so but all part of the, the learning journeys but I think the people part is the is the biggest part, and to have a functioning, healthy landscape as well, and to 
look out and hope know that we made a difference in thinking that you know it's a beautiful property and and we had something to do with that Mm. oh wow look thank you so much David and Ruth you're a beautiful couple and it sounds like you've got a beautiful farming system and family and network and support behind you so thank you for sharing your story I've really enjoyed it thanks Nicola and um, and thanks to Nutrisoil for the support that you guys give us as well and the amazing product, but um, but you you don't sell your product very well, but um, but you sell the stories beautifully, um, and um, and we enjoy being a part of that journey as well. Yeah, thank you, Ruth. I really appreciate that. We we love to be part of this industry. It's it's a great space to work and live in. Please follow the Biological Farming Roundtable podcast. Share it with your friends and networks. I'm Nicola Maddick and I work at Nutrisoil, a liquid biological fertiliser made from a big worm farm whose purpose is to empower farmers to produce life-enriching food.